Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Towns, True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in Boston, Massachusetts, and I currently help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need any help in terms of investigative services, feel free to give me a call at Impact. And if I can't help you directly, I can certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, I'm going to ask you to hop back into the time machine with me on this one. We're going all the way back to 1980. Jimmy Carter was president. Not a great time for the United States. There was a failed attempted hostage rescue in Iran, and several U.S. servicemen were killed. It was a devastating blow to the United States. There was a horrible mood in the country at the time, and the Iran hostage crisis really just exacerbated that. The good news in the Boston area was a young forward from Indiana was just drafted and he'd go on to a legendary career and his name was Larry Bird. So there was an upside to 1980. If you fast forward a little bit to May 24th through the 27th, 1980, that's Memorial Day weekend. And I want to tell you about a score that some people had planned. And then I'll tell you who was involved. The score was situated in Medford, Massachusetts. Medford at that time was a working class suburb, a real blue collar suburb of Boston. But now I think it would be a little more white collar. Home prices have skyrocketed. But back in 1980, it was working class, small homes. New development now is just astronomical in Medford, Malden area. But back then, it was just a workaday town. In downtown, there was a bank, and it was called Depositors Trust. And some local guys wanted to rob it. So keep in mind, this is naturally a long weekend. People have taken off. Downtown is pretty sparse. But these robbers were smart. They were a bright group. They didn't want to break directly into the Depositors Trust Bank. So they went next door to Burns Optical and Hearing Aid Center. That was an easy break-in. And actually, the bank was an easy break-in for them, too, because they had a top-notch alarm guy with them. And he had somehow retrofitted the alarm system to kind of just replay on itself, and it never called the police. It never alerted them to an alarm. So on the first night, they successfully break into the hearing aid center, and now they start breaking into the bank. They go through the wall. The alarm had been taken care of, and they start going through the bank, but there's 18 inches of concrete and things they just have to chip away for. And at a certain point, they ended up using dynamite. Imagine that. They used dynamite, torches, pry bars, the whole nine yards. So this group works all night and into the morning. Come about 5.30, 6.30 a.m., the sun's coming up, and they evacuated. They departed the bank and went to one of the gang members' homes and divvied up the loot. There was a ton of jewelry, 
and there was about $60,000 in cash. And they were a little upset about that. They were disappointed, but they also knew that there were several hundred other safety deposit boxes that they could break into. So they decided they were going to go back the next night, and they did just that. So this group wasn't particularly concerned about being caught by the police. And I'm going to tell you more about that as soon as we get back from break. Wait till you hear this. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. Okay, guys, we're back. And I want to tell you about the players in this case and why they weren't concerned with being caught by the police. It's a simple matter, really. They were the police. That's right, they were. Gerald Clementi was a captain with the Metropolitan Police in Boston, and they patrolled highways, parkways, and all this. They were eventually merged with the Massachusetts State Police, but at that time they had a lot of troubles, and Gerald Clementi was among them. The next robber we have was also a police officer. He was on the Metropolitan Police as well, and he may be the most corrupt individual. I've ever read about. His name was Joseph Bangs, and he was a sergeant on the Metro Police. There was also a sergeant from the Medford Police Department. He was a sergeant, and eventually he was a lieutenant. His name was Thomas Doherty, and he was a sergeant with uh, Medford Police. And on the first night of the robbery, Sergeant Doherty was the lookout in his patrol car on duty. Okay. So you've got a captain and two sergeants. The other members of this gang were Bucky Barrett, who was known as a top shelf alarm man. He was very well known. And whenever a score was conducted in Boston around that time, and it involved bypassing sophisticated alarms, Bucky Barrett's name came up. Also, there was another gentleman named Francis O'Leary, he went by brother, brother O'Leary. And there was another individual named Kenny Charlie Holmes who was involved in this crime as well. But that was the first night of the robbery. And Thomas Doherty was the lookout. Everybody else went into the bank and robbed it. So yeah, that's Boston for you. I think that's why these robbers had no fear in actually using dynamite because Sergeant Darty was out on the street in his patrol car providing guidance and being a lookout. Also, it was a holiday weekend and people were away, but there was going to be a Memorial Day parade that would come right past the bank in downtown, so they had to be cognizant of that. But let me take you to the second day of the robbery. Okay, it's the second day of the robbery. It's Sunday May 25th into Monday, May 26th. It was late night, just before midnight, I think that's when they started. But Gerald Clementi did some asking around. Nobody knew anything. No alarms were tripped, and they were good to go. On the second night, Bangs was the lookout, and he replaced Doherty. So I don't know if Doherty went into the bank this night or did not participate on the second night of the robbery. Bangs was on duty for the Metropolitan Police in a mocked police cruiser, 
and he was working as a lookout for this gang who continued breaking into safe deposit box within the bank. And the second night of this robbery was really hitting the lottery. They began opening hundreds of safe deposit boxes. And I don't know if you know the rules around safe deposit boxes and all that. You're not supposed to keep cash in there, but people do. They also keep jewelry. And there was a rumor going around that the Italian mob used this bank, Depositors Trust, in Medford as a holding place. I don't know if the robbers knew this, but the boxes were full of cash. They were full of jewelry, some of it stolen, and the rest, who knows, but they really hit the lottery on this one. So they continue robbing, and it's all going well. The police are standing lookout. No reason to even get nervous, right? So again, early in the morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock, the gang says it's getting too light out. They clean up and leave. They go to Joseph Bangs' house in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, and they split the loot. This night, they're much more happier. It was written in Gerald Clemente's book, The Cops Are Robbers, that on that night, he left with 100000 in cash. Now, in 1980, think about this. The buying power of $100,000 in 1980 is about $350,000 in today's money. So he left with that. I'm sure the rest of the robbers had similar amounts. And Bucky Barrett, the alarm man, took all the gold and jewelry. He was going to fence this at a later date. So now they're extremely happy. First night they're disappointed, and now they hit the lottery. Okay, so that was over Sunday and Monday nights into the morning. And according to all accounts, there was a ton of jewelry. There was a ton of cash. Estimating the amount of money and jewelry stolen was impossible because it wasn't reported. It was in private security boxes. So there were estimates of between $1.5 million in cash that they walked away with and 20 to $25 million in a total haul that included the stolen jewelry and all this other stuff. So a big score, probably one of the biggest since the Brinks job in Massachusetts. Okay, so Tuesday morning rolls around and everybody's back to work after a long weekend and the robbery is immediately discovered. Clemente, Bangs, and O'Leary came under immediate suspicion. They were known to be corrupt in the area. Also, a short time later, Bucky Barrett became a suspect because of his skill at bypassing alarms. Clemente stated in his book that he wanted to run out the statute of limitations on this case And at the same time, he'd be finishing up his career as a police captain with the Metropolitan Police. So he'd have his pension and his supplemental pension from whatever he had stole from Deposit's Trust Bank. So these guys have the money in hand and everything has been paid out to them. But Sergeant Doherty and Sergeant Joseph Bangs just couldn't get along. Sergeant Bangs became one of the largest drug dealers on the North Shore of Boston, making approximately $15,000 a week. And Thomas Doherty owed him money because he was also dealing cocaine at the time. So at a certain point, Joseph Bangs goes over to Doherty's house with a shotgun to collect this debt. And he gets into the barn or garage. I think they call it a, a barn. 
and Doherty somehow disarms bangs of the shotgun. He discharges it twice, once in the upper torso with buckshot, and then as Bangs is running away, he shoots him again. Now, these wounds ordinarily would be fatal. A 12-gauge shotgun blast each side of you, right? But the doctor said the only thing that kept Bangs alive was the amount of cocaine in the system because it slowed the bleeding because his blood was thin because of the drugs he was on. Strange, right? So now the pressure's on, right? Everybody in law enforcement knew who actually did this. They knew the whole crew and they knew these corrupt police officers and the FBI was involved now. Both Bangs and Doherty were attracting a ton of attention to themselves. They were living a flashy lifestyle, new cars, new girlfriends, new homes. Well, Clemente was just trying to ride out the statute of limitations and laying low. But after Bangs was shot, he immediately turned state's evidence and he ratted out the whole gang and not just for this one enterprise, but I'll get to that later. But everybody ends up indicted except Bucky Barrett. Bucky Barrett is kind of a tragic figure in all of this. By all accounts, he was simply a mild-mannered alarm guy. He did scores, yeah, he did robberies, but that wasn't unusual in Boston in those days. He was a top-notch alarm guy, but he wasn't physical. He wasn't muscle. But in 1983, he was contacted by members of the Winter Hill Gang, which was run by South Boston crime lord James Whitey Bulger and his lieutenant, Kevin Weeks. And they demanded Bucky come to South Boston to look at some jewelry that they wanted a fence. Bucky was also known as a, a pretty good fence. So Bucky knows what's up. And at this time, he tells his family to hit the road. And he's got no choice but to report to Bulger and Weeks in South Boston. Bucky seemed to know it was coming with these guys. He had asked another gangster, Joe Murray, who was from Charlestown, to intervene on his behalf. And Murray did, but he was simply outranked and outmuscled by Bulger. So they get Bucky Barrett to South Boston, tie him up, they beat him, and they want the money. They want all the money from the depositors' trust, and they weren't going to take no for an answer. They held Bucky hostage while other members of the Winter Hill gang went to his house and robbed it. And by several accounts, they took at least $300,000 in cash out of Bucky Barrett's house and all the jewelry. So it was all just a scam to get Bucky over there. They did their own score on Mr. Barrett, and it was a pretty good one. But it didn't end well. And I don't know why it had to end that way for Mr. Barrett, but Whitey Bulger himself shot him in the head. This is at least according to several books and newspaper articles. There's some speculation that the Italian mafia, which operated in the North End on Prince Street, had ordered Bucky to be killed because all those safe deposit boxes belonged to mafioso, real mafioso, Italians in the North End. And they ordered the Winter Hill Gang to kill Bucky Barrett to make a point. Not substantiated. It's unknown if this is true, but that's what they say in the underworld. So Sergeant Joe Bangs turns rat and gives everybody up, everything. 
These trials were front page news for months, for years really, in the metro Boston area. And naturally, Clemente as the ringleader went first. And he was ultimately sentenced to 30 to 40 years for his involvement in the Depositors Trust bank job. Clemente, for his part, received another sentence after this for another scam he was involved in. When I tell you Gerald Clemente was more crooked than a snake in a hurry, I think you're underestimating it. Guy is a total scumbag. Francis' brother O'Leary was sentenced to 12 to 15 years for this score, and I had just read that he had been rearrested in Lowell, Massachusetts in 2010 with a crap ton of Oxycontin and other pills in Lowell. So I don't know if he was on parole at that time, but either way, he was headed back to the penitentiary. Sergeant and or Lieutenant Doherty was convicted of armed assault with intent to murder for shooting Joe Banks. He was sentenced to 18 to 20 years on that. He was sentenced to something similar for the bank job. And later he was convicted of 11 RICO charges. And he wasn't going to see the light of day again, I don't think. And what does Sergeant Joe Bangs get for all of this? Prince of the city, right? Cop, crook, everything. You know what he gets? Nothing. He got full immunity and he was placed in the witness protection program. Nobody's seen him since. I know authorities have to work with unsavory people and they needed somebody to point the finger at everybody else. And I'm grown up enough to know that I guess this had to happen, but full immunity for this guy and then witness protection. I wonder how much money he took with him. Gerald Clemente went on to write a book called The Cops Are Robbers, and that was turned into a pretty shitty movie starring Ed Asner. I try to watch it for you, Boston Confidential fans. Try to take one for the team. But I got through about 10 minutes of this movie, and I couldn't do it. Not even for you guys. I'm sorry. It's that bad. There are some good Boston scenes in it, but it's mostly a B-rated movie, C-rated movie at that. There's one other guy that there's not much information on, and his name was Holmes, and he was involved every night of this robbery, and I'm assuming he took an 18 to 20-year sentence on it. He wasn't a cop, lifelong criminal as well. Don't know what happened to him. He kind of went off the radar in this. Bucky Barrett's body was found under the expressway with two other victims of Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. He was found buried next to Deborah Hussey and John McIntyre under the expressway. The FBI had been closing in on the Winter Hill Gang, and Kevin Weeks had led them to this mob graveyard as part of his plea deal. I think he ended up doing about five or six years on being involved in several murders and corruption, RICO type stuff. So he was a gangster. It's no surprise. And he ended up telling the truth about the organization for the most part, I believe. But I didn't think there was any need to kill Bucky Barrett, but Whitey killed him himself. And I don't think he told Whitey no for anything, really. Okay, there's another part to this case. I was kind of reluctant to bring it up, but it kind of puts all of this into perspective. At least Gerard Clemente 
and Joe Bangs were involved in another case, and it was called Exam Scam. Cheryl Clemente was such a thief, he used his GI Bill. He had actually served in Vietnam and was hired as a cop in the 60s. But he used his GI Bill to take locksmithing courses. And he robbed so much, he had a key copying machine that he kept in his car. He began exam scam by breaking into the Civil Service Administration and stealing old promotional exams, which he would then formulate a study group and charge other cops to study with him, knowingly using stolen promotional exams. After a while, he became more brazen, and he got some help from Joe Bangs, who started his career in law enforcement as a Capitol Police officer, which was at the State House, was right near where the Civil Service Administration was, and Clemente, Doherty, and others would actually break in to the Civil Service Administration, use their own copiers to copy the Civil Service exams, and then they'd sell them. Clemente was selling these new exams, the fresh exams, for 3000 a pop. Now, keep in mind, this was the 70s, so that was quite a bit of money, but you were certain to get a good grade and you'd get promoted, and that goes on to your pension. So cops were lining up in order to buy these promotional exams, and this went on for years. It went on all the way through and beyond the Depositors Trust Company heist. So this guy was making a ton of money. There was a, a gentleman, a cop out of Wilmington, an honest cop named Sergeant David McHugh. He testified for the prosecution. He actually had tried to blow the whistle on this case in 1978. Nobody wanted to hear him. And you know what was found in Joe Bang's Cadillac on the night that he shot Mr. Doherty? was a copy of the 1984 civil service exam. So, I mean, these guys were so crooked, they needed a corkscrew to put their pants on in the morning. When exam scam went to trial, numerous chiefs of police, lieutenants, captains around the North Shore were indicted and they went to prison. The exam scam scandal was huge in Massachusetts. Eventually, 10 police officers from Six police departments in eastern Massachusetts, including two chiefs of police, were indicted. I know you're not going to be surprised to hear that Clemente turned rat in this scandal and fingered everybody else in the case. He got another 15 years on top of the 40 years he got for the bank job. Revere Police Chief John Lear he received a four-year sentence, and he had taken this exam to go from lieutenant to chief of police. Capitol Police Officer Patrolman Richard Madden was also convicted, and he received two years. A retired Metropolitan Police Officer, Frank Ray, pleaded guilty, and he stated that he purchased the exam to give to his son. He received one year. Those last two gentlemen did testify in the case and received lighter sentences, I guess. Another member of the Depositors Trust crew, Thomas Doherty, a sergeant lieutenant on the Medford Police, was convicted of some serious charges, racketeering and perjury, and his sentencing was delayed. He ultimately did over 10 years in prison, I know that. But in this exam scam case, there was one 
person who was not convicted. He was, in fact, acquitted. His name was Michael Doherty, and at the time, he was 22 years of age. He was acquitted in the exam scam scandal, and he worked for the Medford Police as a patrolman. Guess who his father was? His father was Sergeant Lieutenant Thomas Doherty. And I know Sergeant Lieutenant's not a rank, but he was first a sergeant, then a lieutenant on the Medford Police. And his son got one of these cheat sheets exam and was ultimately acquitted in a court of law. And that week, he was reinstated to the Medford Police Department. Think about that. All right, guys. That day and age of law enforcement being so utterly, utterly corrupt is over. We're in a new, better age now. I sincerely believe that. This was kind of a hard story to tell. I have family in law enforcement, and they're ashamed of it. And this was a stain on all of law enforcement during that time frame. So that's all I got for you now. If you like the podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on Apple if you can. It really helps. We're coming up on 7,000 downloads today. I think that will happen. So we're getting some traction and we have some exciting things going forward. I'll talk to you more about those next time. So I'll see you next Monday. Have a great week and share Boston Confidential's podcast. Thanks, guys.